So yesterday we left off, uh, let me back up one slide. That's what we're looking at. We left off with the process of the beginning of sin. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure there's any way I can overemphasize how important that is to me. Maybe it won't be to you. But understanding how sin began, not, not why, you know, not that one question, right? How did sin come into a perfect universe? That I don't know. But understanding once the first step was taken, understanding the cascade of events to me is, is vital because it has everything in the world to do with the entire history of sin from there on out and it has everything in the world to do with the entire history of salvation because salvation is nothing more than the solution to the sin problem. It's not magic. It's not superstition. You know, superstition is when you believe that item A produces item B with no logical connection in between, right? You know, there's a, what is it, a black cat walks across in front of you. Oh, no, that's bad luck or something, right? You break a mirror, open an umbrella, or walk under a ladder, or throw salt over your shoulder, whatever. The, I don't know what all that stuff is. You know, somehow, some people believe that with no logical cause and effect relationship, those things change the future. Salvation is not superstition. Salvation makes sense. But only when you understand what sin is. <laughs> if you don't understand where sin came from, you're, you're, you don't have any way of looking at a logical way to solve it. Does that, does that make sense? So I want to go through this, re this review real fast one, one last time here just to make it really simple. Try to, try to memorize this. That would be my two bits of advice. It goes like this. And it, it happens to you and to me and it happens over and over again. So that's why it's so important. If I don't believe God will take care of me, right? I lose confidence in his faith or his wisdom. Or in our case as well, his power. Right? Let, me, let me just take just a moment. Some philosopher types refer to this as the divine triad. Okay? If you believe in any supreme being, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian perspective or not, but if you believe in any supreme being, you better hope he has three characteristics. Okay? You better hope he has infinite love, infinite wisdom, and infinite power. If you do away with any one of those three, you're in a world of hurt. Okay? If he has infinite love and infinite power, but doesn't have infinite wisdom, he's going to make mistakes. That's going to be a mess. If he has infinite wisdom and infinite love, but doesn't have the power to put it into effect... Well, that's, you know, that's like the hallmark thing. You know, it's the thought that counts, right? <laughs> you know, I, had, I had a really great idea on how I could bless you, but, you know, shucks, I can't pull it off. <laughs> I don't have the power. That's not going to work well. And, and perhaps the worst 
is if he has infinite love, excuse me, infinite power and infinite wisdom, and he doesn't like you, <laughs> that's really bad. <laughs> you better hope somebody with infinite wisdom and infinite power likes you. <laughs> okay? So, Lucifer lost faith. It's really fascinating. In heaven, there's no record of Lucifer challenging God's power. He challenged his love. He challenged his wisdom. He did not challenge his power. The war in heaven, actually, when you go to Revelation 12, it says there was war in heaven. It's an interesting word for war there. It's polemos. That's where we get our English word polemic. It's not a real common word anymore. It used to be big. A polemic is a violent attack on someone else's position or philosophy. It has nothing to do with tanks and machine guns. It has nothing to do with right jabs or left crosses. It has nothing to do with any element of force other than persuasive force. That's the war in heaven. Actually, there's an interesting statement in the manuscripts and releases. Now it says, and then there was, no, let's see. She says, uh, and then there was the council in heaven, dash, war it is called, or warfare it is called. The war was a political war that did not degenerate at that point. I, I don't know. I don't want to speak more than I know. Perhaps as they were being expelled, there was some force involved, you know, some physical force involved. But the, the war was won and lost as polemos, as an argument over position. Okay, so anyhow, Lucifer did not challenge God's power. He challenged his love and his wisdom. And he lost faith in one or the other, or both of those, both very quickly, I, I would suspect. Once you've lost faith, it's a downhill slide. And I want to point out that the Bible tells us that righteousness and salvation are by faith. There's a cause-effect logical relationship between the origin of sin and the remedy for sin. That makes just a lot of sense to me. Okay? Some doctor comes along and wants to give me a prescription that has absolutely nothing to do with the disease or the condition I'm dealing with. That's not helpful. <laughs> okay? Okay, so... If I don't believe God will take care of me, that's a loss of faith. If I think I can do a better job of taking care of myself than God can, that's pride and stupidity. If I try taking care of myself in some other way than what God asked me to, that's the actual act of disobedience. That's when we usually first notice this. If my influence convinces someone else that self-serving is better than service, that's a lie. And if I put myself first instead of loving my neighbor as myself, that's stealing and, under enough pressure, it will become murder. Once I've lost faith in God's love and wisdom, his ability to care for me, you're going to go there. Guaranteed. Okay. Now, I'm going to go through this next section fairly quickly. Um, how did Lucifer carry this out in heaven? What, what did he do? What were the tactics that he used? Okay. Um, 
I'm actually, this is material from a book that I'm working on. It's, I hope to have done within the month, but I don't know. It's been dragging. Um, and, and the focus of the book is actually the tactics. The title of the book is Tactics. Okay. Uh, subtitle is Mapping Out the Methods of Lucifer's Rebellion and Christ's Response. I want to know how they do this stuff. But today, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because it would just take too much time. But I want you to, you know, I'm going to go through a quick list here, okay? First thing he did is he would exploit his position and trust as long as possible. Of course, he was, you know, he was like the, what would you say, the chancellor or something of heaven, right? You know, there was divinity and then there was Lucifer. So he had a lot of position and he had a lot of trust. So he would exploit it. Incidentally, I, I should point out the, the value in understanding his tactics there is that Ellen White tells us that the tactics of evil never change. Okay? Everything we've seen on earth, we saw it first in heaven. Everything we will yet see on earth, we've seen in heaven and in classic cases of rebellion down through time. So there'll be nothing new at the end. Okay. He would hide his intention from others. He would imply or insinuate without clear assertions. Keep it a little fuzzy, don't want to get nailed down here. He would distort others' perceptions. Now, Ellen White uses the term hypnotism. Okay, Lucifer used hypnotism in heaven. He would maintain plausible deniability. We'll see an example of that. I'll just spend more time on that in a moment. Shift responsibility to others. Not me. No, 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 no. That's what they're thinking, you know, type of thing. Okay. He would just plain lie if he had to, right? You know, just, okay. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, right? So I'm going to tell a lie. He would abandon discredited positions without accepting responsibility for having advocated them. Just, you know, oh, oh, okay, move on. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. He would cite his supporters as evidence of correctness. And he would appeal to sympathy. Now, I'm going to make a very cynical comment, which is totally grounded in fact. And that is, if you look at this list and anything there reminds you of worldly politics, that is no surprise. <laughs> okay? Politics is politics. It's the same issue. These are the tools of evil when trying to persuade. And if I may, as one who is still a United States citizen, but living abroad, don't think either side or any side is pure as the new-blown new snow, okay? <laughs> Come on, people. We have got to stop looking to earthly authority as some sort of hope for the solutions that the world is facing. Okay, let's move on. I'm going to just give you some quick uh, spirit prophecy statements that illustrate these different things. I'm not going to get hung up too much on trying to identify which one, but I want you to, to see how some of these played out. Okay, Taking advantage of the loving, loyal trust reposed in him by the holy beings under his command, Lucifer had so artfully instilled into their minds his own distrust and discontent that his agency was not discerned. He was making people unhappy, and nobody knew where it was coming from. 
Lucifer had presented the purposes of God in a false light, misconstruing and distorting them to excite dissent and dissatisfaction. He cunningly drew his hearers on to give utterance to their feelings. Then these expressions were repeated by him when it would serve his purpose as evidence that the angels were not fully in harmony with the government of God. Catch that mechanism right there. That's the one thing that Ellen White refers to more commonly than any other of Lucifer's techniques in heaven. Okay? Plant a seed of doubt, get the other person or angel or whatever, you know, get the other guy to say something, then grab the quote. Go to the next guy over and say, you know what Marvin said? Okay? It shifts responsibility. It hides your agency. It's, it's, it, it was like apparently the number one go-to thing that Lucifer was doing. You'll see it another couple of times here in these quotes. While claiming for himself perfect loyalty to God, he urged that changes in the order and laws of heaven were necessary for the stability of the divine government. Thus, while working to excite opposition to the law of God and to instill his own discontent into the minds of the angels under him, he was ostensibly seeking to remove dissatisfaction and to reconcile disaffected angels to the order of heaven. While secretly fomenting discord and rebellion, he, with consummate craft, caused it to appear as his sole purpose to promote loyalty and preserve harmony and peace. Now, brothers and sisters, Lucifer is not the last individual to use this technique. And with all due respect, I see traces of this commonly within Adventism. You're not going to find these things have gone extinct. So, you know, kind of get familiar with the concept. It may serve you well. Number one, it should serve you in preventing you from doing the same stupid thing. That's the most important thing. The next most important thing is it may preserve you from falling for someone else's influence that's trying to head that direction and plant it in your mind. Okay, going on. In his first display of disobedience, Satan was very cunning. All he claimed was that he wanted to bring in a better order of things, to make great improvements. Does this not sound like a politician? <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of interesting slogans and things that uh, you know, one could quote from, if, if you've paid any attention to U.S. politics, or any other country for that matter, but if you've paid any attention to U.S. politics for the likes of the last 40 years or so, everybody has their little quote, tagline, whatever, just want to make things better, folks, you know? I could pick on individuals, but, you know, the moment I said anything about a Republican, you'd think I was a Democrat, and the moment I said anything about a Democrat, you'd think I was a Republican, and the truth is, I don't want to be either. Amen. I want to be a Christian. <laughs> Moving on. Satan could present no defined reasons as to why he wished the law of God changed. Hello, What? No defined reasons. He simply declared his conviction that angels would be better off without the law. But he could not tell in what way they would be advantaged. Well, that's a winning argument. Did he draw attention to that fact? Of course not. Right? You never accentuate your weak points. You, know, you stick with what you think is a strong point and leave the weak stuff just totally unacknowledged. 
Lucifer gained the sympathy of some of his associates by suggesting thoughts of criticism regarding the government of God. This evil seed was scattered in a most seducing manner. And after it had sprung up and taken root in the minds of many, he gathered the ideas that he himself had first implanted in the minds of others and brought them before the highest order of angels as the thoughts of other minds against the government of God. Thus, by ingenious methods of his own devising, Lucifer introduced rebellion in heaven. Hey guys, I just uh, need to give you a heads up. This is what they're saying down on the street. Why are they saying that on the street? Uh, because I planted those seeds, but, you know, let's not talk about that. Watch your politicians. The very first thing any politician needs to do is establish a discontent. You know, if you're happy with the status quo, why would you vote for a new guy? So you've got to establish discontent with the status quo, and then you can say, oh, look at that, there's a problem, I can fix it, vote for me. Moving on. Words, oh, 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 this is important. I'm going to back that up so you don't read ahead of me. This thing of planting the seed, getting the statement, taking the quote, is, is huge. Really huge, okay? And you want to watch at every step that you don't get sucked into it. Because not only, if, if, if Lucifer comes and he plants the seed, not only can he use your quote against that guy, but the very fact that you said it changed your thinking. Follow this statement here. Words have power to react on the character. Men are influenced by their own words, often under a momentary impulse, prompted by Satan, they give utterance to jealousy or evil surmising, expressing that which they do not really believe. But the expression reacts on the thoughts. They are deceived by their own words and come to believe that true which was spoken at Satan's instigation. It is dangerous to utter a word of doubt, dangerous to question and criticize divine light. Your brain is evidently wired in some way or the other that when it hears something coming out of your own mouth, it says, well, that must be what I believe. <laughs> I'm not enough of a neurologist to tell you exactly how that works. But your words change your brain. Watch your mouth. <laughs> Watch your mouth. Let's move on. Many of these angels, those who sympathized with Lucifer, had occupied high positions in the government of God. All were enriched with the talent of intellect and were girded with strength and glory. Remember Kor, Dathan, and Abiram? 450 princes of Israel fell with their rebellion. There's something, in one sense, advantageous about being the lowest guy on the totem pole. You're the last one they target. <laughs> you know, you're the last one they, they target. They, they want you, yeah, because, you know, we've got to bring the masses along. But they're going to do it by trying to take out the leaders or take the leader along with them. Be cautious. The seeds of alienation were planted, 
afterward to be drawn out and presented before the heavenly courts as originating not with Satan, but with the angels. In his artful way, he drew expressions of doubt from them. Then when he was interviewed, he accused those whom he had educated. He laid all the disaffection on the ones he had led. And the scary thing is, the ones that he was leading never knew what happened to them. Were they defenseless? No, they were not defenseless. What was their defense? Unquestioning faith in God. Only defense. Lucifer was the highest in the government. He knew more than the others. If you're down here, you can't say, well, I need evidence. You're not going to get the evidence. Your, your security clearance is too low. <laughs> you're not going to get the evidence. Righteousness is by faith. Not because that's magic. Because it's the only defense you've got. Now, this is just kind of an, a passing thing. One-third of the angels went with Lucifer. Two-thirds of the angels stayed with God. What made the difference? Oh, man, don't you suppose they've wondered that? <laughs> when you see a bunch of your friends head south, why didn't you go with them? What little thing held you? Whatever the little thing was in the circumstances of your life, I'll tell you, somehow or the other, it made the difference between you, whether you trusted God or not. That's what held them. Angels are not mass-produced cookie-cutter jobs. Can you imagine? Remember early writings? talks about how there was the big council in heaven, and some who were leaning towards Lucifer came back. Oh, boy. Did I just dodge a bullet. Can you imagine their thoughts 4,000 years later at the crucifixion? Oh, man. Not only that, many of the angels that followed Lucifer were not wholly convinced at the time. But they followed him. After he was expelled, remember? Lucifer goes apart to lay his plans. He comes back and he tells them, this is what I'm going to do. And they say, well, we don't know if we want to do that. And he said, figure it out. I'm going to go work on my plans some more, right? There's that whole experience in there. Figure it out. And they had to hash this thing out. They said, oh, boy, are we going to follow this guy and do that? They were not wholly convinced when they were expelled from heaven. Whoa. Some people dodged, or some angels dodged a bullet, and some angels took a bullet. And the only difference I can find is unwavering faith in God.
If you have that, you will be safe. Let's go on. In his interviews with other angels, after succeeding in finding sympathizers, he arranged his arguments and presented them as if they were the sentiments that had originated in the minds of those whom he first led astray. That's a big thing. It's not kind of a peer pressure thing, you know? And this is only effective coming from someone at a, a higher level than you. Does that make sense? You know, that's, that's the only place you can really use this. You can't use that on your superiors. You use that on people who are some step below you in, what would we say, you know? In the hierarchy of church influence, in the hierarchy of educational experience and influence. How many people have had their minds changed by a professor? That's what teachers get paid to do, by the way, is put stuff in kids' minds. And then ask them to repeat it. It's called a test. Be careful. I'm sorry, I was a classroom teacher for 20 years. Be careful the education that you accept for yourself. Be careful the education to which you subject your children. Education's a powerful thing. Don't pretend, I mean, I, I taught for what, six, uh, 14 years, I guess, in boarding academies. Do not pretend that you are going to send your child off to a situation where he or she is surrounded by 20, 24 hours a day with a whole body of influences and pretend that somehow the memory of what they were taught at home is going to trump that. That's no reference to the president. Uh, don't, don't, don't think that that influence of surrounding of peers and of an educational institution is, is not going to change your kid. Just, just don't, even, don't even hallucinate. Let's go on. The tempter would throw all the blame of his course upon others who were below him. He would make it appear that if he could have moved according to his own judgment, all this demonstration of rebellion would have been avoided. You know, if God would have just let me handle this, really, it was, it was a little thing, you know? We could have, we could have solved this simply. Lucifer worked through the medium of influence, taking advantage of the action of mind on mind. And ever since then, sin has continued its hateful work reaching from mind to mind. Every sin committed awakens the echoes of the original sin. Mutual dependence, this is influence of one person on another, mutual dependence is a wonderful thing. That doesn't mean necessarily, oh, great. It means like, oh, wow, you've got to wonder about that. Okay. Mutual dependence is a wonderful thing. Reciprocal influence should be carefully studied. When placed on the side of right, influence is a power for God. When placed on the side of evil, it is a power for Satan. One human being under Satan's control becomes a means of temptation to another human being. Thus, evil grows to immense proportions. I'm fascinated by this reaching from mind to mind. Every person's experience 
in the past has had some effect on me. How is my life different because Elijah stood for God? His influence affected this guy, affected that guy, affected... You know, uh, I'm not a big baseball fan, but the one thing about it that I find most amusing is, is I mean, it's such a slow game. I mean, people standing around 90% of the time doing nothing that the announcers have got to fill this in, and they do this with their, their statistics, right? You know, so you get, you know, sparkling pieces of wisdom like this. Do you realize, Sam, this is only the 17th time since 1947 that a left-handed batter with only three fingers has, has gone up against the right-handed pitcher so when the bases were loaded in the bottom of the ninth inning? No, I hadn't thought of that, Marvin. You know? <laughs> Anyhow, they keep these, these, these insane records of every conceivable stupid thing. Would I not love to see the Lord's records? of the influence of evil and the influence of righteousness reaching from mind to mind to mind. Ah, fascinating. Would there be, could you imagine? I don't know. Will there be a single, unbroken biological line in heaven? Is it possible? Would it be paternal? Would it be maternal? You know? Is there a single broken... I don't know. Oh, I'd love to see the records. Someday. Okay, let's move on. <clears throat> the influence of mind on mind, so strong a power for good when sanctified is equally strong for evil in the hands of those opposed to God. This power Satan used in his work of instilling evil into the minds of the angels, and he made it appear that he was seeking the good of the universe. Just trying to help. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> the, uh, uh, Satan was artful in presenting his side of the question. As soon as he found that one position was seen in its true character, he changed it for another. <laughs> he never said, oh, I confess, I was really wrong on that point. No, 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 just uh, moving on, moving on. It's a lot like politics. Satan exultingly pointed to his sympathizers, comprising nearly one half of all the angels, and exclaimed, These are with me! Will you expel these also and make such a void in heaven? He was calling God's bluff, and that didn't work well, because the answer to that question was yes. <laughs> yes, we will expel all these. But this is the, you know, everybody believes with me, you know, type of argument, right? Classic whatever, peer pressure type of thing, and combine it with the sympathy issue. When it was announced that with all his sympathizers he must be expelled from the abodes of bliss, Satan and his hosts threw the blame of their rebellion wholly upon Christ, declaring that if they had not been reproved, they would never have rebelled. Hello, what? Dude, that's backwards. <laughs> you were reproved because you rebelled. Somehow, he wanted to turn it on its head. Lucifer cast the cause of his defection upon Jesus Christ and upon God. If they had not so firmly resisted his plans, he said, he would not have gone on doing as he did. Wrongdoers always find sympathizers. 
And Satan so represented his case to the angels that he drew many angels from their allegiance to God. He's just always picking on me, man. I didn't do anything really. You know, he makes a big thing out of it. He calls everybody together and he makes this big public issue. He didn't have to do that. This one is dangerous for us because as Christians, we are supposed to be sweet, kind, and loving. Right? We're supposed to be sympathetic. Yeah, but watch your sympathies. There's a line. Don't cross that line. What's the line? Absolute unwavering trust in God. Never cross that line. It is impossible for man to measure the ingenuity shown by Satan in deceiving human minds. Uh, who was it? Was it um, Darlin? Somebody, somebody made the point, you know, you don't want to tangle with the devil on your own. Yeah, it, it ain't going to work out well for you. Okay, he's brighter than you are. You cannot measure the ingenuity that he has up his sleeve. Lucifer's work of deception was done, oh, oh, just look at this one. This, ah, this just kind of blew my mind. Lucifer's work of deception was done in so great secrecy that the angels in less exalted positions supposed that he was the ruler of heaven. I, I cannot explain what that means. <laughs> All I can tell you is that is one monumental level of confusion. <laughs> Something going on there. <laughs> okay. This guy is sharp. Do not tangle with him on the basis of your intellect. The only weapon you have is absolute, unwavering trust in God. The originator of sin worked with all his deceptive powers and satanic subtlety to become equal with God in heaven, as the Son of God was. Then he thought he could sway the heavenly angels as he desired. This specious, deceptive work was carried on secretly. The archdeceiver himself concealed his identity so far as was possible, and the Lord permitted this rebellion to develop before anything was done to save the angelic host from apostasy. Now, if you're like me, that last sentence bothers you. I'll be honest. When I read that, it bothered me. What's up with that, God? What's up with that is, I can only believe, Infinite wisdom. Can I explain it? No, not completely. Can I defend it? No, not completely. Does it cause a certain level of outrage in my mind? Yes, it does. But you know what? I choose, in my ignorance, to have unwavering, unswerving, unwavering, one or the other, or both, <laughs> faith in God. That's all I can do. We'll see more examples of that, and I want to point, that, point this out to you, because this is a big issue. This is how the battle is fought. 
Okay, now. Uh, back about 18 years ago, I had a naive little simple thought. I said to myself, arguments are generally over something. So if I say the car is red and Andre says the car is blue, how do we resolve the argument? Yeah, we walk out to the garage. <laughs> okay? And we look and, oh man, he's right again. <laughs> okay? So I said to myself, why don't I find out what the argument was over? What is the great controversy? Arguing. What were Satan's accusations? I know it's a simple, dumb little thought, but you know, sometimes I'm simple and dumb. That's fine. And so I put together this monstrous search for, you know, with the Ellen White CD-ROM thing, okay? Every word I could think of for Satan. Satan, Lucifer, archapostate, archdeceiver, first great liar, da-da-da. Every, every word and phrase I could think of that ever had any reference to Satan. Every word or phrase that had any reference to God, heaven, government of heaven, Christ, uh, divinity, etc., etc., etc. Everything that I could find that had anything to do with law, because I, Ellen White says that the, the argument is always over the law of God, so I knew it was that already. I wanted to see what the accusations were. So law, Ten Commandments, uh, Decalogue, uh, I don't know, a whole list there. And any word I could find that had anything to do along the lines of fault-finding, accusation, uh, accuse, you know, whatever, anything like that. Put together this whole massive list, or a whole big massive search. It gave me, I think it was like 142,000 hits from Ellen White's writings. Took me a whole year to go through those. <laughs> I didn't read every word, I'll admit it, I skimmed, okay? I skimmed a lot of them. But in kind of my you know, spare time type of thing, I went through the whole list looking for Satan's accusations. I anticipated that there would be dozens of them. There were not. Even when I get kind of slicey-dicey and start splitting them out, and you, know, you can combine a little bit here and there. You know, when you slice them out, I only come up with nine. Let's look at them in the order that they came up in heaven. This is not necessarily, the, I would say, the best logical order, but Satan was working on his feet at the time, and so sometimes argument came up and he had to kind of backtrack to get support for it. Okay? So as near as I can tell, this is the order they came up in heaven. Angels are holy by nature and wise enough to govern themselves, so they don't need God's law. God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. God is proud. God is selfish. God's law is defective and needs to be changed. Neither angels nor human beings can obey God's law. And bear in mind that he made that argument before human beings were even created. God's law is arbitrary. God's law makes forgiveness impossible. And the last accusation, God is lying about all this stuff. 
That's all I can find. So now here's the question. Suppose, just pretend for a moment, in some sort of sanctified way, right? Pretend that you're God. And Lucifer registers these accusations against you and against your government. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Your move, God. What are you going to do? Take about a three-minute break, okay? I don't want you to go running off to find lunch now or something, okay? Stand up, move around a little bit, get the exercise, you know, do some circulation. I have to switch to a different, different uh, presentation, that's all. So I'm not going to give you a lot of time, but I'm going to give you a little time. So, here's the question. Lucifer accuses God on nine fronts. What's God going to do? Okay? There's a clue in the subtitle right there. You remember, maybe you don't remember, the subtitle yesterday was, Try Something New. And God's response is, let me show you. Let me show you. Now, just moments ago, we had this uh, slide up on the screen, or at least a very similar slide, said the same stuff. Those are the accusations. And the question is, if you were God, what would you do? Now, I want to point something out. Um, If you ever study up a little bit on formal logic, it's kind of a fascinating topic. Formal logic is is a, a set of rules and principles that have been developed by great minds down through the ages to try and make sense out of the reasoning process. And since reasoning is the realm of politics, it, it, it became, formal logic became very focused in certain ages of history on political debate and such things. <clears throat> and so the, the uh, debaters often appeal to these principles of formal logic. Some of them have cool Latin names, but there's one that I really like because it has a very simple, down-to-earth English type of name. I suppose you could say the same thing in French if you were, you know, French-Canadian. But in English, it's known as poisoning the well. And it works like this. Um, is it Pennsylvania? Yeah, okay. I presume you have a governor here in Pennsylvania. Who's your governor? Okay, not a lot of politically involved folks here. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to guess that you have a governor. <laughs> I don't know who it is. Yeah, okay. That's okay. But, uh, oh, really? What? Okay, anyhow. Yeah, I think that's New York. Yeah, that's, uh, okay. Doesn't matter. Okay, but just for the illustration... <clears throat> I am here, candidate A, running for governor of Pennsylvania. And I am here, candidate B, 
running for governor of Pennsylvania. Okay? So now we have this little debate thing. And <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's okay. Yeah. So we have this debate, and, and all the nice citizens come out to hear the two candidates discuss their platform and such things, okay? So candidate A gets the chance, you know how you know, a formal debate, this guy gets a five-minute introduction, this guy gets a five-minute introduction, this guy gets a 15-minute you know, main body statement, this guy gets his 15-minute main body and, or 20-minute main body and rebuttal, then this guy gets his, you know, it had this structured different way, different times, but it goes back and forth like this, okay? So candidate A gets to speak first, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I am so proud of the state of Pennsylvania that all of you came out because you have a, a concern and an interest for political affairs, and that's, that's great. Our democracy is strong and well, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, before we go any further, there's something that you need to understand about this situation, and that is that my opponent is a notorious liar. You can't believe anything he says. That is poisoning the well. Now, candidate A finally winds down after his five minutes, ten minutes, whatever. Candidate B now gets a chance to speak. What's the first thing you're going to want to say if you're candidate B? I am not a liar. Candidate A breaks the rules, which says that candidate B has the floor, and he says he just lied. The well has been poisoned. There is nothing candidate B can say to remove the doubt that he might be lying. Once the well is poisoned, words are worthless. And so Jesus says, let me show you. Words don't cut it anymore because of accusation number nine. Let me show you. Now, what's interesting is when you go looking for you know, Ellen White's comments in this regard, what did God do? She she actually spends more time talking about what he couldn't do. And once again, you know, you know, oh, but God can do anything. No, no, sorry, there are some things God can't do. How shall the universe know that Lucifer is not a safe and just leader? To their eyes, he appears right. They cannot see as God sees beneath the outward covering. They cannot know as God knows. Then to work to unmask him and make plain to the angelic host that his judgment is not God's judgment, that he has made a standard of his own, exposed himself to the righteous indignation of God, would create a state of things which must be avoided. Could God have said, let me tell you all about Lucifer? He's a liar and a murderer. And the angels always said, what, what, I, I don't get it. What, I never heard of either of those. <laughs> What's lying? What's murder? No idea. 
it would create a state of things which must be avoided. I want to point out here, what that means is that there is strategy involved in the great controversy. Does that make sense? Strategy is the intentional deployment of your facilities and, and, and instrumentalities, okay? If you're going to have, let me think if I can, you know, it's almost impossible to think of anything that involves no strategy whatsoever, okay? Um, if you're going to do arm wrestling, there's even a place for strategy there, perhaps, you know? You, you kind of wear the guy down a bit, and then you wait until 30 seconds, and then you give it a, a big push, okay? That's a strategy. That's the intentional, knowledgeable application of your available resources to, towards the, the task of, of winning this conflict. Does that make sense? Wars have strategy. Everything has strategy. But the only thing I know of that tries to not have strategy is feeble-minded Christians. Let's just go ahead and sing happy songs. <laughs> Sorry, you're in a war, people. Let's ride our bicycles through ISIS territory and see how it goes. I'm sorry, they're dead. That just happened, I just saw that headline yesterday. I've, I've got to save that clipping, because that, that's just like, <laughs> that's just incredible. God uses strategy. Let's move on. God designed that a change take place and that the work of Satan be brought out in its genuine aspect, but the exalted angel standing next to Christ was opposed to the Son of God. The underworking was so subtle that it could not be made to appear before the heavenly host as the thing it really was. There are some things God can't do. Satan could not be presented to the universe at once in his real character. His crooked course must be allowed to continue until he should reveal himself as an accuser, a deceiver, a liar, and a murderer. Satan had disguised himself in a cloak of falsehood, and for a time it was impossible to tear off the covering so that the hideous deformity of his character could be seen. He must be left to reveal himself in his cruel, artful, wicked works. God can't say anything that makes any difference here. He must demonstrate his own side, and he must allow Lucifer to demonstrate his side. Demonstration is the only thing that matters at this stage. And we've been in that stage uh, for about 6,000 years. God's purpose is to place things upon an eternal basis of security. Time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his government. The heavenly universe must see worked out the principles which Satan declared were superior to God's principles. God's order must be uh, contrasted with Satan's order. The corrupting principles of Satan's rule must be revealed. The principles of righteousness expressed in God's law must be demonstrated as unchangeable, perfect, and eternal. Now, I've said a couple of times, there are some things God can't do. And we're not used to thinking that way. The flip side of that is, there are some things God has to do. We think, oh, God can just kind of like do whatever he wants. No, there are some things he has to do. Notice these words.
God was up against the one individual in all the universe that was most like himself. Right? Remember that? This is as close to an even match as you could get. Now notice what has to be done. Lucifer's principles have to be developed. The universe must see. God's order must be contrasted. Satan's rule must be revealed. God's law must be demonstrated. Everything hinges here on perception. The universe will not have this issue settled until they perceive through their own befogged thinking. I mean, befogged here on this earth. The rest of the universe is pretty good, actually, but, you know, down here we're a little dumb. Until it's perceived, the issue is not resolved. And so the demonstration must be made and must be made so clearly that all perceive. Does that make sense? Notice here, too, is an interesting thing. As far as Satan was concerned, the damage is all self-inflicted. God is not fighting Lucifer. He's fighting error. And allowing error to destroy itself. It's all self-inflicted. But even if Lucifer totally discredits himself, that is not sufficient to remove the doubt that has been planted about God. God must not only allow Lucifer to demonstrate the falsity of his position, he must himself demonstrate the veracity, the truthfulness of his own positions. Nothing counts but demonstration. The unfallen world saw that the character of God could be vindicated only through this trial and conflict of the two forces. The attributes of God must be made to appear. Of the stability of his government, there must be no question. Well, God can just do anything he wants. No, he can't. (laughs) There's only one thing he can do. Only one thing he can do. And that involves demonstration. Anchor that thought in your head. It's not magic. You know, I, I just am, I want to say this respectfully, but I have absolutely zero use for what I term spiritual fairy dust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Explanations of the plan of salvation that don't show how he's dealing with the problem of sin, you know, they may be enough to inspire someone's faith because we haven't always had the understanding. We've, we've, you know, the Lord has granted God's people at the, at the end of time here, okay? If I were alive in Martin Luther's time, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I, I don't know anything about, right? I can still have faith then, but when we don't know about it, it means that there's going to be logical gaps that we have to, we have to work from faith, and, and that often gets distorted. You know, I believe that good Catholics who believe that when the priest says, et hoc corpus Christi, it becomes the body and the blood of Christ, I, I, there will be some of them in heaven. 
they were a little mixed up on the whole, you know, transubstantiation thing. But you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is faith. Righteousness and salvation is by faith, and faith can exist in a state of partial ignorance. It has to exist in a state of partial ignorance. That's why you need faith, right? So, that's fine. Don't pretend that you've got a full explanation, though, that resorts to spiritual fairy dust. If you are going to explain the plan of salvation completely, and, and you know, in a sense, there's, it'll never be com- explained completely, probably, but if you're going to explain it, look for the reality, not the fairy dust. Okay, let's go on. Um, <clears throat> no verbal description could reveal God to the world. <laughs> just, just look at that. No verbal description could reveal God to the world. There are some things God himself can't do. Through a life of purity, a life of perfect trust and submission to the will of God, a life of humiliation, such as even the highest seraph in heaven would have shrunk from, God himself must be revealed to humanity. Demonstration is the only thing that counts. Now, I'm going to just plant a seed, and we'll come to this much later on in this series. What do you suppose the implications of that are for you? What this world needs today is what it needed 2,000 years ago, a revelation of the character of God. How do you think you're going to do that? You know, one of the big military lessons of the 20th century is that you cannot win a war with your Air Force alone. You got to have boots on the ground. You may have heard that expression, boots on the ground. That's why. Somebody came up with this neat idea. Let's just bomb them into submission. That's never worked and probably never will work. Okay? You cannot win a war with your Air Force alone. And with all due respect, and I mean that sincerely because there is a great respect deserved, we have to a large extent tried to win the war with nothing more than the three angels flying in the midst of heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Do we need three angels flying in the midst of heaven proclaiming the everlasting gospel? Yes, we do. But we need privates down in the mud and the blood, on the ground, demonstrating it, as well as proclamation. Does that make sense? The proclamation is wonderful. Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching. Okay? Preach on. Now get out and demonstrate. I have to say... that the theme song is a good theme song. I like it. Send the power again. But you know what? When that happens, 
going to be through demonstration. Let's go on. <clears throat> this is Isaiah, Jesus, speaking of Jesus. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own armor, arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. Uh, notice back up in the one before there. The, the life of Christ was such that the highest seraph would shrink from it. Okay? Nobody else would do it. Now, there was a point where the angel says, no, 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 Jesus, don't go, send me. And God said, no, that, that won't work. He could have also said, well, let me explain what that really means. And they would have kind of, uh, you know, I don't think actually, I, I, um, nah, count me out on that one. <laughs> they would not have done it. They would have shrunk from it. Okay. <clears throat> Moving on. I'm taking too much time. I've got to go more quickly than this, or I'm not going to get through this. Without the correct knowledge of God, the human family would be divested of all divine strength. With false attributes kept before the mind as belonging to God, the human family would be the dupes of satanic lies and the subject of satanic agencies, and he could practice upon their credulity with success. What it's saying is if we don't understand the character of God, we're, we're hopeless. The devil will attack us, and we don't have the armor. That's the understanding of the character of God. <clears throat> Christ, um, you know, I'm going to just try and skip over some things here because I'm, just, I'm too far behind. I've been yakking too much. <clears throat> Every act of Christ's ministry was far-reaching in its purpose. It comprehended more than appeared in the act itself. A wise purpose underlay. So this is the demonstration process now. When Jesus came, it was, let me show you. I'm going to demonstrate, right? Were the mind of man capable of understanding his dealings, every act of Christ's earthly life would stand forth important, complete, and in harmony with his divine mission. Uh, oh, that's a great statement. I'm going to skip it. <clears throat> the great object that brought Christ to the earth was to reveal the Father. God is love. This was the great truth that Christ came to the world to reveal. The object of Christ's mission to the world was to reveal the Father. In his ministry, all his self-denial and self-sacrifice, Christ's object was to reveal God to the world. The work is demonstration, but what's it a demonstration of? It's a demonstration of love and self-sacrifice. See, this is, a, this is a, and I'm so thankful because somebody reminded me of this just yesterday. I've forgotten this line of argument. God was in a hard spot. How do you demonstrate that you are not selfish when you own everything in the universe? <laughs> you, know, you can see that as being selfish almost. You know? God, how come you're in charge of everything? How come you own everything? He had to find a way. And there was only one way. The only logical completion of the argument of unselfishness is death. I will give my life for you. Up to that point, there's a question. Oh man, the, the guy gave, uh, you know, he just paid uh, $40,000 so I can go to college. Well, that was sure generous of him. I wonder what's in it for him. <laughs> I wonder what's in it for him. How do you prove your unselfishness until there's nothing in it for you. 
going on. Christ exalted the character of God, attributing to him the praise and giving to him the credit of the whole purpose of his own mission on earth. Whole purpose. To set men right through the revelation of God. I thought he came here to save us from sin. Yes, he did. That's the set men right part. But it's through the revelation of the character of the Father. When the object of his mission was attained, dash, the revelation of God to the world, that's called a statement in, in apostrophe, okay, if you're an English major type of thing, okay, set off with an M dash, it means it's a restatement of the thing before, okay? So if I say, Tom, comma, Fred's brother, comma, went to town, Tom is the same as Fred's brother. Fred's brother is a restatement of Tom, right? Okay, so notice this. When the object of his mission was attained, the revelation of God to the world, the Son of God announced to his, that his work was accomplished and that the character of the Father was made manifest to man. The demonstration of the character of God required the cross. This announcement was, it is finished. Up till that point, the character of the Father had not been fully demonstrated. God sent his Son into the world to reveal, so far as could be endured by human sight, the nature and the attributes of the invisible God. This is so fascinating to me. There's such a line of precision. He had to do this much, but if he went a single step beyond, notice what happens. Christ revealed all of God that sinful human beings could bear without being destroyed. <laughs> That's a fine line. I'm, I'm glad he's got, a, got a, a good grasp on that. You know, we don't want to go too far with this, God. Christ is the perfect representation of the Father. His life of sinlessness lived on this earth in human nature is a complete refutation of, God's, of Satan's charge against the character of God. Remember the accusations? God, uh, Christ's life on earth is the, what does it say, complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character of God. So here's a question. If Andre and I are arguing about whether the, the car is red or blue, and we walk out to the garage, and we're like, oh, oh, look at that, it's red. Why isn't the argument over? If his life was a complete refutation, why isn't the argument over? That's a big issue. Because if the argument should have been over at the cross then God's going to have to explain to me why he's allowed 2,000 years of sin and suffering. Why are little kids dying of starvation? You know? Is there a good reason for that, God? There better be a good reason for that. This whole God is love thing? If he's allowing sin and suffering to continue year after year after year for no good reason, then I've got an issue with the whole God is love thing. There better be a good reason. But if this was a complete refutation, why are we still here? Notice the precision. I just love this. The more I dig into this, man, Ellen White, and I don't know if she was even conscious of what she was doing today, but her, her wording takes on this incredible level of precision. Complete refutation of Satan's charge against the character. Doesn't say the government. The character. Of God. Now, there's a very close tie between the character and the government of God, but she made a distinction, and you'll see why in a minute. 
Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, veiling his glory and humbling himself that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. In other words, the character of, or the, the representation that Christ gave us is so much, so perfect of the character of the Father that if two weeks before the incarnation, God the Father and God the Son had been talking, this hey, let's mix this thing up. You go, I'll stay. We wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how come you say, show us the Father, Philip? <laughs> right? Jesus could not express in words to the understanding of man the love of the Father. He could only say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus could not Express in words the character of the Father. The, the best he could do is quote the most famous verse in Scripture. But that was insufficient. Notice the next sentence. But he did express the love of God in his actions. Keep preaching, brother. But do more than preach. That's what Jesus did. He preached and he healed. That's the combined work. Preaching and healing. Teach the truth, live the truth. And living the truth doesn't have to be miraculous healing. All it means is helping the other guy. Medical missionary, you do not have to be a, a credentialed doctor or nurse to be a medical missionary. You don't even have to do anything that we would call medical. You can go next door and rake leaves for the little old lady who's, you know, kind of got crippled up knees and she can't do it anymore. That's medical missionary work. Helping people is all that it boils down to, okay? Now, if you happen to have medical credentials and you can do gallbladder surgeries, you know, it's probably a time and place for a gallbladder surgery. Use the talents God's given you. You know, I'd love to do a gallbladder surgery. I think it would be a fascinating experience. But, you know, probably with some wisdom, they've asked me not to do that. So I don't, okay? <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I confine my activities to, you know, lesser things. Okay. <clears throat> the Savior of the world devoted more time and labor to healing the afflicted of their maladies than to preaching. Why? Because he was smart. <laughs> okay? He knew that words alone wouldn't do it. Ministry would do it. Christ came to this world for no other purpose than to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. Christ revealed God and his, to his disciples in a way that performed their hearts a special work such as he has long been urging us to allow him to do in our hearts. What did it do to the disciples? It made them like him and that he went out doing the works that he had done. That's the special work that he wants to do in our hearts as he wants us to remember that sermon and now go live it. Moving on. Got to go quickly. I want to go zipping through a lot of this. Had Christ unmasked Judas, this would have been urged as a reason for the betrayal. And though charged with being a thief, Judas would have gained sympathy even among the disciples. The Savior reproached him not and thus avoided giving him an excuse for his treachery. Remember that statement? Until Lucifer's rebellion was developed, nothing was done to save the other angels from apostasy. 
Jesus did the same thing with his disciples. He told them, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know how much he said about Judas? Nothing. Nothing. At the Last Supper, when Judas got up and went out and it was night, the disciples said, I don't know, maybe he's going to go buy some food. That's how much Jesus had exposed Judas. I've got a little issue with certain quote-unquote ministries who spend all their time trying to expose the evil of the church. I, I don't think that's what Jesus did. And if you're expecting someone to come along and tell you everything that's going on behind the scenes so that you can be smart and avoid apostasy, you will be mistaken. You will be disappointed. And I suspect you will be deceived. Your knowledge of apostasy will never save you. You have one weapon. Absolute unwavering trust in God. Let's go on. Uh, Christ's life of sinlessness, living on this earth and human nature. Okay, we saw that one before. Let's move on. Okay, so we want to go through this quickly. The accusations. So, Christ's response was demonstration, up to and including the cross. So how are the accusations holding up now in 31 AD? From the perspective of the universe, okay? What about number one? Is the rest of the universe buying number one? Angels are inherently smart. We could never do anything evil. You just killed Christ. Oh, now, one other thing, real fast. Desire of Ages, in the chapter, it is finished, right-hand page, up near the top, about seven lines down. I can't remember the page number. I don't know why. I never can remember the page number. But anyhow, interesting statement. At the cross, it says that Lucifer's disguise was torn away. He was revealed as a murderer. Right? 761. There we go. That sounds like a good number. That's probably right. I can never remember that one. I don't know why. 761. 7 minus 6 equals 1. Maybe I can get this. Anyhow, okay. It's always room for improvement, folks. (laughs) Okay. So now, let me ask you a question. Why was not Lucifer revealed as a murderer when Cain killed Abel? How many murders had there been in 4,000 years? But Lucifer was not revealed as a murderer until Jesus died. What's up with that? Let me tell you what's up with that. There's a categorical distinction. For 4,000 years, Lucifer could just simply say to the universe, Whoa! Don't blame me. That's what God said he was, his law was going to do to sinners. You can argue whether we should use lethal injection or gas chamber or hanging or firing squad or what are the other neat ways that we come up with to kill people? Um, you know, you can argue about the method, you can argue about the circumstances, but don't complain to me that sinners are dying. God says he's going to kill them anyhow. He couldn't say that with Jesus. Because for the first and only time in all of eternity, a sinless being died. 
That's what made the difference. That was the demonstration of the falsity of Lucifer's position. And that's why it took the cross, not only to demonstrate the character of the Father, but to demonstrate the character of Lucifer. No other approach would have ever worked. So, the universe is not buying number one. Oops, I got too carried away. What about number two? (laughs) Number two. God was unfair when he exalted Jesus above Lucifer. I mean, they're the same, practically, right? Well, not 4,000 years down the road, they're not the same. Okay? The universe is not buying number two. So we can take one and two off the board there. What about number three? God is proud. No. Not after Calvary. Nobody buying that one. God is selfish? Not after Calvary. Nobody buying that one. Three and four? Down in flames, Lucifer. Sorry, man. Number five. God's law is defective and needs to be changed. Now, it's interesting. This is one where there's kind of an inversion in the logic, almost, I would think. But this is the order that Ellen White gives them, so, you know, whatever. Look at number six. I would have maybe come up with number six before trying to argue for number five. Yeah, okay. Neither angels nor human beings can obey God's law. Therefore, it needs to be changed, right? That's the way I would have approached it. But maybe Lucifer had some other twist that I don't fully understand. But what about those two? After Calvary, is anybody there in the universe saying that God's law cannot be kept? He just did it. <laughs> he just did it. Okay. Now, if I were to tell you that I could bench press 400 pounds, some of you with a certain amount of knowledge in the weightlifting thing might be inclined to look at my somewhat scrawny physique and question the veracity of my assertion. <laughs> I don't think it can do it. But if we took that piano bench right there, brought it down here, and had a 400-pound bar, and I did it, the official term for that is na 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 <laughs> I did it. Okay? There is something wonderful about demonstration. nobody can keep God's law. He did it. Five and six, gone. Two-thirds of Lucifer's arguments were destroyed by the cross. There are still three left. That's why we're still here. Number seven is perhaps the most basic and fundamental of all the arguments. Even the first five would not make sense without number seven. It's almost like the logic, the twisted logic, of what he was doing in the first five forced Lucifer to take position on number seven. If you want depth, tackle with number seven. Okay, I'm not even going to touch it. I, I did, I, I'll just say this, just, just by way of illustration. I've tried to, to, to analyze and explain and, you know, go through all the ramifications of that particular number seven argument, okay? On my hard drive, I've got a 400-page manuscript at this point, which is not going to see the light of day until there's a lot more work on it, because this is deep, <laughs> okay? This is, this is deep stuff. Just, just, you know, do your own research. Look up 
NYT used to this, this idea of God's law being arbitrary and see where it leads you. And then write a book on it and send it to me. I'd, I'd love to see what somebody else is thinking before I am stupid enough to open my mouth. Okay, anyhow, seven is a big one. And here's why this works. Arbitrary, go through this. I, I, we can make this really quick in here, okay. What, what, what does arbitrary mean? Okay, I'm going to just cut through a lot of stuff. Arbitrary means because I said so. Almost every law that you can think of is because someone said so. What's the speed limit? 65. Why? Oh, I don't know. Somebody up in the courthouse said so or something. You know, okay. How much do I have to pay for a dog license? Well, it's 12.50 this year. Why is that? Well, that's why we set the, the fee. You know? um, everything, tax brackets, uh, you know, whatever. You know, it's all because someone in authority said so. Right? Now, there's some cool things about those kind of laws. You can change them. <laughs> That's what's neat about those laws. You know, the taxes are too high. Vote for me. I'll lower your taxes. You know, okay. Well, that's nice. Okay. Lucifer said, "God, your law is defecting. Change it." Ellen White never has God say, "No, Lucifer, I'm not going to do that." Never has him say that. God always says the law can't be changed. Can't be changed. Lucifer says, oh, come on, God, just, you know, you, you said no, the law is such and such, just say something different. It's an arbitrary law, God, just, just say something different. And God says no, and that's when Lucifer switches on to the, God's just being stubborn and selfish. He won't do what he could do to make life better here. Okay? So it's all tied to this arbitrary thing, okay? Now, God says his law is not arbitrary. Can you think of any law that is not arbitrary? That's not because someone said so. Perfect. I think gravity is too strong. I want to change it. Vote for me. Everybody's got to have a platform. <laughs> you ain't going to change gravity. So God says, my law is not arbitrary. Lucifer says, well, God, if your law is not arbitrary, you can't possibly forgive anyone. When they walk off a cliff, they're going to fall. End of discussion, God. Do you really have a law that makes it impossible for you to forgive? Anyone? That's argument number eight. Read Great Controversy, down to the very end, close of probation. It says that Lucifer looks around, he's like, oh, wow, look at that. The, the angel guard around God's people have been doubled. It says that he surmises, I think it is, or infers, one of those two words, that, the law, that, that, that probation is closed. He doesn't know for sure, but he, he yeah, looks, looking that way, <laughs> okay? And then she says what his last-ditch argument is, okay? Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If you're in a war, more of a, you know, prosaic, physical type of war, and those guys over there are trying to kill you, okay? And they keep coming closer, maybe you've got nine weapon systems that you can use, but... The best one is a secret. You don't want the enemy to know about it. Okay? So you're going to start with number one. 
Did that stop them? No, they're still coming. Oh, try number two. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, no, we've got to use number nine. Okay. Your last-ditch argument is always going to be your best weapon. Does that make sense? Lucifer is at the very end. He's pretty sure probation is closed. This is the last ditch, right? Remember, that, come, that expression comes from World War I with the ditch warfare. Yeah. This is the last ditch. <laughs> there ain't no more ditches, man. We've got to stop them here. What is his argument right at that point in Great Controversy? Thou canst not in justice, O God, forgive them and condemn me. That's his argument. Right back to 7 and 8. This is the big stuff. The pending big stuff. This is where we're at right now. Have been for 2,000 years. Well, why didn't Jesus take care of that when he was here? <laughs> I mean, come on, you know? He, he took care of the first six. Why, why didn't he, like, come on, do the job? He can't. Those two, seven and eight, let me just talk about number nine for just a second. Number nine is the whole poisoning the well thing we talked about before, Okay. So far, it's been shown that God was not lying on 1 through 6. When 7 and 8 are answered, and everybody says, well, he wasn't lying on those either, number 9 just evaporates, right? So 9 is pointless once 7 and 8 are, 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 are dealt with. So we've only got two things to deal with. What, what, what's, what's the holdup? And the holdup is us. Because the only way God has to deal with those things is through a demonstration provided through those he is seeking to forgive. Does that make sense? A little bit? There's a lot that I haven't been able to fill in on that. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to end this. That's, that's a fascinating argument right there. I'm going to skip over the whole thing just because I don't have time. Oh, boy, that's a shame. <laughs> okay. So where are we at now? We are at the place where God is looking to make a demonstration to refute Lucifer's arguments, and it has to be made through you and me. Or, if you and I prove unfaithful, the next generation. God's not limited to using me. I'm pretty irrelevant, actually, to the whole issue. <laughs> you know, I, hate to, I don't want to pop anybody's bubble, but you are not the center of this issue. <laughs> you are the center of attention. The whole universe is watching you. Because God has said, I will demonstrate this through my people. And the universe is sitting there, and they're saying, you know, he was right on the first six, What about seven and eight? Does it make sense to forgive people? To take people like you and me, confirmed, participatory, born in sin sinners, whatever that born in sin thing means, you can debate that all you want. You know, he wants to take people like you and me, take us to heaven, and put us on the throne. That's what he said he's going to do. That's the original position, right? 
That's where humanity was supposed to end up, with, on the throne with God. Does that make sense? And another quick point. What does immortal mean? And remember from your Bible studies on the state of the dead, who alone hath immortality? Are angels immortal? What's that? No, they're not immortal. Uh, how do I know? Have any angels died? No, no angels have died. But I know that some will. What about the good guys? What about Gabriel? Is Gabriel immortal? God alone hath immortality. Gabriel, Gabriel is not immortal. He has what we call conditional eternal life. As long as he obeys, he lives forever, which is almost as good as being immortal. <laughs> but it's not the same as immortal. God alone hath immortality. Immortal is not just that you don't die, it's that you can't die. And the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and this mortal shall put on immortality. And Gabriel is talking to Jesus one day, and he says, Jesus says, you know, I've been thinking about this whole thing. Is it really a good idea? <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, they're not doing so well down there. Look at the way they're living, Jesus. You want to bring them up here and you want to put them on your throne and then you want to make it so we can't get rid of them if we need to. Is that a good idea, Jesus? And Jesus says, Gabriel, for right now, I ask you to have faith. I will demonstrate through my people that that is a good idea. For now, have faith. And Gabriel says, well, Jesus, it's the one thing that got me this far. I trust you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask you to strengthen our faith. May we have the privilege of being a part of your demonstration of faith. May we have a privilege of being a part of your demonstration of the character of your Father. May it be manifest through faith in our lives, our words, and our actions. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.